I thought about what my colleagues would think of me. Um, and, and, and that was a fear. How would they respond? Would they treat me differently? Would I get called into my boss's office and then talk to me um, about talking to the media? Like I was, I was very fearful of what the um, feedback would be from my colleagues. Hi everyone, I'm Katina McHenry. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode today of Fuck Fear. Every episode I say this, but I am excited about every guest that comes on because I just appreciate people making the time and I so much enjoy having conversations with each of the guests about fears they are facing. Today's guest is a colleague of mine and I'm so excited to have her, Desiree Cross Ward. She is a post-secondary education professional that's focused on storytelling, which is one of the reasons I love her so much, building community and creating a sense of belonging for black faculty, staff, and students at historically white institutions. She has done a lot in the space and she is one of those people I appreciate so much for all of her work and her effort. Um, originally, she's from Salisbury, North Carolina. She received two bachelor's degrees, one in journalism and the other in organizational communication from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Right now, she's a social media strategist in the president's office at the University of Texas at Austin. And that's what brings us to today's conversation. Thank you so much for being here, Desiree. I'm so glad to see you. This is gonna be a great talk. Today, we are talking about fear of speaking out which a lot of us have experienced. Um, Desiree recently has uh, experienced this. And so first I wanna welcome you, Desiree. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Katinia and audience. Very nice to be here. I am very excited also for the conversation that we're going to have. So yeah, let's jump right in. All right, so first question is, what are you afraid of? Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> Am I afraid of? Um, I used, mm, what am I afraid of? Yeah. Okay, I'm just gonna go with what came to mind first, which yes. is failure. Mm. I didn't wanna say failure at first because that's something that I've been working on for a really long time. I am aware of that fear and I've been working on it. I was like, dang, is that still my fear? But you know, I still battle with that. So I'm gonna say failure. I'm afraid yeah. of failure. So in what area do you think? What what area do you think is, is, is fresh for you right now when it comes to failure? I mean, you just graduated from UT and you're working. So what area do you think is most fresh? Yeah, I, I would say there, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure right now. I did just graduate with my master's degree and like everybody loves asking graduates, what's next? And it's like, <laughs> mm, I'm not sure yet what's next, um, but I know it's going to be something great. And so my fear, I mean, that's coming back to, to that's coming back right now of failure. It's like, okay, girl, like you have your master's degree. You, you, have built up your resume to this point, what is next? What's gonna be that next thing that you do? You can't fail because you didn't got this far. Right. So what's next? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, that is, that's, you know what? I Thank you for being honest about that because I can see you mm -hmm. thinking about which what you were gonna actually say. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, thank you for speaking out about that. So today we're talking about fear of speaking out and recently, Desiree has taken to the page. She was recently featured in an Austin American Statesman article that was titled, 
Um, diversity and inclusion at work takes a toll on black faculty, staff, and students. And so you were quoted in that article, mainly recently UT has been, um, has been uh, in the news cycle because of the controversy surrounding the Eyes of Texas fight song. So in that spirit, and and then I think the conversation really sparked, of course, after George, George Floyd, uh, the killing of George Floyd, where a lot of institutions have had to really think about what their policies are and, and how they hire. And, and I think it's taken a toll on us at UT because there aren't that many Black faculty and staff. So talk a little bit about that story, why you wanted to be included in that. And then we'll talk about some of the things you said in the article. Yeah. Um, so... With that story, that story came at a, a great time. I mean, you did a wonderful job setting the context in which that story came. Um, I was approached by the journalist. She was, she's actually a student at UT Austin. She's a communication student at UT Austin. Um, and she had just heard about all of the things that I was doing at UT Austin. Most recently, State of Black UT was a three-day event that I volunteered my time to, to put on um, with the Warfield Center. And so it, I was excited that she was talking about Black cultural cultural taxation, because like, it's something that I have spoken about with my colleagues, my Black colleagues, like internally, um, but it's not something that I've seen widely um, talked about or discussed in mainstream media. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that she was an intern at the Statesman and they were giving her an opportunity to explore whatever topic she wanted and she chose this, I wanted to make sure um, that I gave her like some, some, some good content to put into the story. Um, and she was also, she had a great lineup of other people um, that she was interviewing as well for that story so that's how I got approached about the story um, and again I was really excited to to share the ways in which um, I am taxed at UT because a lot of times continue like we'll do we'll do this work but we don't get credited for it because we're yes. behind the scenes we're the communicators we're the organizers um, and so it was also an opportunity for me to 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 share with the world, this is the work that I've been doing. And y'all don't know that I do this work, but I, but this is what I've been doing during COVID-19 and the racial reckoning of post-summer 2020. Yeah, yeah. You know, Desiree, I think the reality of organizations paying attention to how people of color have been affected in organizations where there aren't a lot of us is, we have had to be those people who do the educating and when you say cultural taxation and how we are taxed, I think we are taxed and exhausted because we have had to not only do the work for ourselves, but also do the work for other people and explain over and over and over and over again the experiences that we have gone through. And that is taxing. So talk a little bit about, you, you are heavily involved at UT um, in, in several organizations. So talk about a little bit about your work there and then just how that has led you to the point of being so exhausted, but why you've also been motivated to speak out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, great follow-up question. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you talk about like how as 
Black people within our organizations, we are heavily taxed um, to to support others. And sometimes those others are our own people. And so a lot of the taxation that I experienced at UT Austin, granted, I mean, I volunteered to be in this position, but um, I serve as co-president elect of Black Faculty Staff Association. And this coming up fall, I will move into the co-president position. So um, Black Faculty Staff Association is the employee resource group at UT Austin. And so we serve um, in multiple different ways our Black faculty and staff. And so, for example, when George Floyd happened, like, I don't know about you, Katia, but I'm the only Black person in my office now. Mm -hmm. Now, there was another Black woman. She left. Mm -hmm. You know her. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, um, at that time, I was in all these white spaces and these things were happening in our country and nobody in any of my meetings was talking about what was going on as if yeah. like as if we are separate from what is happening in the world yeah and so like as part of that cultural taxation and in my role as co-president elect of BFSA it was upon me to create that space because I'm not the only black person at UT who is the only black person in their space and in their office and so yeah. we created a space for black faculty and staff to come together and to grieve and to share their emotions and to talk about what is happening in the world and how it's impacting them and their ability to do their job so that's just one example of cultural taxation like that's something I had to do <laughs> as I was experiencing racism in the world I had to create a space at UT Austin for other black faculty and staff to be able to to talk about that yeah. Yeah. One of the things you said in the article, uh, in the Statesman article, is the cultural tax that I take on, nobody asks me to. You said, I seek it out and I seek it out because I really do truly believe in being the change you seek. So if I see a problem, I'm like, hey, what's going on over there? And then you said, I wish I was getting paid for this. So before we <laughs> get to that, which is exactly right, like we should be making at least $100,000 for our consulting work, right? Just in the last year. Girl, give me a snap on that. <laughs> But so do you think you got to the point of speaking out because you were tired of the conversation not happening or did you get to the point, like, how how did you get to that point? And then what were your fears associated with just speaking out in the small ways and then in the grand ways? So there's a few things that were happening in the background that led to me like finally speaking up and speaking out. I mean, the first thing I think about is like my husband, Michael, he is very much so aware of my, my skill, my skill of writing and my love for writing. And he knows how therapeutic it is for me. So he has constantly been encouraging me to write and like share my voice because I'm not the only person experiencing this. And I, and by sharing my story, I am able to encourage others by showing them you are not alone in your struggle. No, this is not happening in your head. Racism is real and you are experiencing it in your workplace. Um, And so my husband encouraging me to to speak up and use my voice um, as well as like, (laughs) I had just graduated from school. Like I was done with work. Like I didn't have papers that I was writing or like chapters of books that I had to read. I had free time and like, free time was is dangerous it's dangerous and it allowed me like I used I said oh I got free time all these things that I've been wanting to write about but I didn't make the time to because I had other things on my plate like that was no longer an excuse I didn't have that excuse no more I was like you know what just let me write and again like it was therapeutic for me like I was going 
I was boiling. I was boiling inside. Yeah. I was like, I have to get this out. I have to mm-hmm. get it out. Um, and the way I overcame my fear, I mean, there was some fear, especially like with the article being featured in an article because I work at university communications, I went back and forth a lot on whether or not it would be appropriate for me to share my story because I work at university communications. And I was like, but that's not all who I am at UT Austin. I am not just a social media strategist in the president's office. I am also co-president of Black Faculty Staff Association. I am also a graduate student. So there were other identities that I was like, I shouldn't let this one identity that I had at the university keep me from sharing my story. Yeah, yeah. So how hard was it to get over that? I mean, it, it is a big deal to decide to be included in an article, not just in the Statesman, as affiliates. So the the, the story doesn't just stay in Austin, it is shared with affiliates across the country. So was that ever a thought of yours? I didn't think about how widely it would be shared. I Mm. thought about what my colleagues would think of me. Mm. Um, and, and, And that was a fear. How would they respond? Would they treat me differently? Would I get called into my boss's office and then talk to me um, about talking to the media? Like I was, I was very fearful of what the um, feedback would be from my colleagues. Um, But at the end of the day, like they were, hmm, at the end of the day, (laughs) most of them were very supportive. I will say that I was a little disappointed that my leadership team, my leadership team did not talk to me about the issues that were raised in the article, which really surprised me and disappointed me. Because clearly I'm having some, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up against some barriers in the workplace. And for you right. not to take the time to take me aside and say, hey, saw this article, great article, glad you were featured. Let's talk about this cultural taxation and how we can, and how we can help alleviate some of that um, with, with your time with us in university communications. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, what's interesting about that, Desiree, is that is also taxing because sometimes it feels like the white people in the space don't are afraid they have their own fears right and they're afraid to have that conversation because either they don't know enough or they aren't um courageous enough to be able to handle what it is you're going through and to be able to handle that conversation because it's more than just a conversation. It is a reckoning and realizing that you need to make some changes to make this space comfortable, more comfortable for me. And you also need to recognize what has been historically happening, which is not good, which is what got us to this point in the first place. And so how did you navigate that? because obviously it was necessary to talk about it and with them not treating you well after the article that also says something too right like the action is louder than the words so how did you navigate that Ooh, i mean you hit the nail on the head i mean you you asked me like what were some of my fears with like talking to the media and like just writing about some of the things i've been writing about my experience with race and institutional racism within my workplace one of my fears has been um, white fragility. Mm. In order to get over that fear of hurting somebody's feelings mm-hmm. or um, not 
or mismanaging the white fragility, I had to be like, okay, girl, what's more important, white fragility or your own sanity? And I chose myself. I chose myself until, because again, my writing is therapeutic. And I was like, I'm going to choose myself over white fragility. I'm going to choose myself over fear, false evidence appearing real. That is the acronym that I use for fear. I was afraid that I was going to have negative pushback. And in reality, there's no, I had support from, from my colleagues, not the support I wanted from my leadership, but I had support from my colleagues. So that's how I overcame that fear of white fragility. I was just like, Hey, what is more important here? And I chose myself. Right. So when you talk about disappointment, how disappointed were you? Can you talk about just the disappointment you felt and the expectation you had of your of the leadership? And what is your continued disappointment? Because I imagine the conversation never happened, right? And so obviously there is the, the unspoken tension that still exists with you and the leadership. Obviously the conversation needs to happen, but it probably won't. So there's probably a lot of disappointment, but what for you was the most disappointing and how do you navigate that? Because you still have to work there, right? I mean, you still work there and you still have to do the day-to-day operations knowing that this bigger elephant is still sitting there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I will say this. I will say that my manager, so who I directly report to, let me rephrase. Mm-hmm. So initially, nobody said anything to me, right? Um, and then I had my evaluation, my annual evaluation. And this year, continue, I was very um, intentional about, um, about documenting the institutional racism that I've had to navigate at UT. Mm-hmm. So on my evaluation, when it asked me, what barriers have you encountered? <laughs> Uh, in doing your job, I listed institutional racism. And I went into detail about that in my evaluation. So it's documented. Like UT can't say they did not know about the issues that I was dealing with. And when I did that, that's when my manager came to me. And like, I had a conversation with her. I shared with her my disappointment that this conversation had not happened before. And that I would like to have it with other leadership. She was like, um, she was very curious. She approached the conversation with curiosity, which Mm -hmm. I really appreciated. And she also made, she also went out of her way to reach out to the leadership and say, hey, this is what Desiree shared in her evaluation. I highly recommend that y'all reach out to her and talk to her about some of the the issues that she's dealing with. Still, nobody has talked to me about it. My manager has since left, which is, I'm happy for her, but it's like, I I was just disappointed that, um, again, that, that nobody seemed to have the courage to have this difficult conversation about race and how some of their actions may be perpetuating the issues um, that I experienced. How did I get over that, that disappointment? I got louder, I wrote more, (laughs) I was like, oh, oh, so y'all, so y'all not gonna say nothing about this? (laughs) Bet. So that gives me, that told me I can write about whatever I want to write. I can say whatever I want to say and won't have any repercussions because y'all don't want to talk to me about it. Right. Yes. Girl. (laughs) Oh, so, you know, like I love the build, right? Like you have the fear, you get over the fear, you say the thing and you realize like what you were afraid of was probably not real. 
that just gives you power. It just empowers you and gives you mm-hmm. inspiration within your own self to keep doing and keep going forward and keep on the path. Obviously, like this is in, this is the, one of the things you do. It's in your wheelhouse. You are a journalist. You have a journalism degree. And so writing and speaking is not something that's new and foreign to you. So I wonder now that you have been able to get through that that difficulty how easy is it for you to think about the things that you still want to say and say them without the fear or is there still fear attached to some of the things that you still want to say still fear like I think I've gotten over the fear of of speaking out at Mm -hmm. at this point because I've had so many pieces that have come out since that piece in the statesman um and so that fear of speaking out is no longer there there's still a caution there is still um a caution there um because I'm a a strategist so I'm very strategic about how I share my story and the words that I use because me and you both know words are important and they are powerful um and so I would say my I've replaced my fear with with caution Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with caution I get it so one of the things you another um piece that you wrote about recently was called black flight and that really had to do with the lack of diversity and the lack of representation in the city and where has it gone (laughs) and we know there has been a decline and you talk about when you first moved here from North Carolina the things that you observed about the percentages of what our population looked like and um and and what was most compelling to you so talk a little bit about that because I think that that took some courage too to not only observe what was happening but also do something with that information yeah 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 um when I first moved to, so I'm from North Carolina. I'm from mm-hmm. North Carolina. We have um, a very high Hispanic population and the place where I was at, there was a very big black population as well because Salisbury, North Carolina, as I learned from the National African-American Museum in DC was a slave port on the transatlantic uh, wow. the, the, the transatlantic slave trade. So I was like, yo, so many things from my childhood make sense now yeah. as far as like what I experienced growing up in the city. So I come from a very diverse place in North Carolina to come to Austin, Texas. And it was very, very white. And I was just like, I... I, I was surprised because I, I had never seen anything like it. Granted, I went to went to UNC Chapel Hill, but I found my Black people. Yeah. And it was a lot easier to find Black people at UNC Chapel Hill than it was at UT Austin and in Austin, Texas. <laughs> yes, um, I know. Half of the Black people here are my family members. <laughs> so it, it was just, it, it was weird. So I was very yeah. intentional um, about finding my community once I got here to, to UT Austin. And what I've noticed... Um, one of the things that I learned when I first got here, I, I, I immediately said, why? 
why is this city mm-hmm. so white? So I did my history. I did my research, found out about the 1928 plan, which was the city, the city plan to, to um, segregate the city. Mm-hmm. And that plan was very successful. And we continue to see the ramifications of that, of that plan today. Yep. The price of living is going up in Austin. So you take this 1928 plan that segregated the city and you bring in gentrification into the story and you bring in this black flight. People are leaving the city because it's way too expensive to live in Austin, Texas. I just got yep. pushed out. I live in Maynard now. Wow. I bought it. We bought a house. Couldn't afford wow. anything in Austin. Moved yep. to Maynard, which yep. is 25% black. Just saying. Yep. Stark difference. Yep. Stark difference. I know. Oh, Stark and uh, um, 35 was built where, and, and where it is built, I-35 was very strategic as well as part of that plan. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So when I came here and I learned about the Black flight and why people are leaving, um, it made me want to find community even more. Mm-hmm. So we take this idea of Black flight in Austin and I'm looking at UT Austin and I'm seeing Black people leaving left and right. I'm like, what is what is happening mm-hmm. here? Why cannot we retain our black faculty and our black staff? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why that's what encouraged me, and yeah, that's what the what encouraged me to write um, Black Flight again. I told you I was. I am now the only black person in my office. And when that second black woman, I was the only black person when they hired me, she came on, was there for about two years and then left recently. And when she left, I was like, it, it hit me in a way I was not expecting. And that's what led to me writing my, like, So the, the, the Black woman who was in my office, she was a bit older than me and was in a, a director level position in my office. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have the closest of relationships or the closest relationship that I would like to have. But the fact that she was there, like her presence alone was enough to make me feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, it was enough to make me feel like, okay, if something racist go down in this office, I know that I can go to Robin's office and she is going to understand and not gaslight me or race like me Ooh. and encourage me, right? Yeah. Gaslighting right. and race lighting. Oh my God. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. Girl, let's talk about that too a little bit later because that shit is real. Mm-hmm. And it's happening every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talk about fear. We're talking about fear mm-hmm. here. Having another Black p- person in my office made me a little less fearful of microaggressions, of um, of feeling like I'm, I'm alone. Because like loneliness can be very scary. It can yep. be very scary. Um, so... Shout out to Robin. I miss you. I hope I that you're enjoying. Too. I know. I got Oklahoma. to see her a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful, she wonderful. lives in the same place as my dad and sister. So I was like calling her. I was like, girl, I have to see you. So I, <laughs> I, I'm so happy I got to see her. Um, so you also recently did something really big. And, um, and I, I think, you know, as we're talking about fear of speaking out, Words are not the only way you can speak out. Actions are is also another way you can speak out. And so you recently wrote about walking out in your graduation ceremony and why you did. 
So I want to talk about that Um, and going back to talking about the controversy of the eyes of Texas. So I think many people know by now what that conversation is all about. If you don't know what the conversation is about, the University of Texas has a fight song that's called Eyes of Texas. The tune, the melody to the song is um, from minstrel shows. Um, which were uh, uh, very racist and which are very racist. And, um, and so there was a recent committee that was assembled and the findings of the committee um, that, that studied the song and the history and the origin of the song, their findings were that the song is not racist, but that doesn't mean the melody, whatever the committee said, the melody still is what it is. And so there has been continued conversations and also uh, controversial conversations, which are okay to have controversial conversations about the song, its origin, its words, what the words mean, what the melody means and where it all uh, stems from. So that I think will be a continued, um, not just conversation, but will be, will be continually controversial. Um, mm-hmm. So, We now have two bands at UT, one that wants to play the Eyes of Texas at student events, football games, and then a band that doesn't want to play the song. That is also segregating. We could go on about the song. I don't want to spend too much time talking about the song. Going back to what happened with you recently at graduation, why did you decide to to walk out? And you wrote about it. So let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Great recap, by the way, of Eyes of Texas. <laughs> um, yeah, like, <laughs> so I didn't realize that a walkout was happening with Eyes of Texas until like maybe three days before graduation. One of my colleagues hit me up um, and she was like, hey, this is happening, just an FYI. And I was like, Oh, and so that put me in a position where it was like, I immediately asked myself, are you going to do this? Are you going to walk out of your graduation to protest this song? And there were a lot of uncertainties that went through my mind. I was like, okay, when are they going to sing the song? Are they going to sing the song at the beginning or the end? Like, if I walk out, will I be able to come back in? Um, will I be able to link up with my parents afterwards if I if I walk out? Um, what is what is my 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 boss going to think? And when I say my boss, I'm referring to the head honcho, um, uh, Jay, Jay Hartzell. He's the president of the university, and, and I work directly with him. I'm like, what is he going to think when he sees me walk out? Um, so there there was a lot of back and forth that I went with um through in my head and even up until continue even up into the very like right before they sang the song I was like I was looking around I was planning my exit okay I was like, okay where where I'm going to walk out and how and another thing that I was afraid of was that I would be the only one the only mm. graduate student because mm-hmm. I was like, I know undergraduates, I know undergraduates are going to walk out, but what about my grad students? Am I going to be the only one on the field leaving during this song? Mm. Thank God I was not. I was not the only one um, who, who walked out during that song. And um, I also went back and forth as well because like leading up to the song before they played it, I mean, there was this speech about uh, unity and not allowing differences to, oh to do, to, to, um, basically to to disrupt unity don't allow differences to disrupt unity and like I was like y'all know what y'all using all of these nice words but at the end of the day this song in and of itself the essence of this song right 
is doing this thing. Mm -hmm. So don't tell me that me protesting the song is what's creating disunity. No, this song is, so I had to fight through, I had to fight through all of those semantics um, and, and really convince myself that I am walking out on this song because I fundamentally disagree that this song should be our school song because it is rooted in racism, Mm -hmm. period. And so I was like, and I want to show solidarity with my fellow students um, who were protesting. And so that's why I decided to walk out of graduation. It was not an easy decision to make. I was very much so um, afraid. I work with a lot of UT administration. I have a lot of eyes on me because of the role that I play at UT. And again, I was like, what are going to be the, the repercussions of this action? Right. I wasn't sure. Right. Right. But again, nobody said anything to me about it. So. <laughs> and now graduation is long and gone. <laughs> long and gone. Wrote it it out and still, nobody said nothing. Wow. Nothing. Wow. So, so knowing that Desiree, that that is a fact that Things have happened. No one has said anything to you. How, and I hate this question, how does it make you feel? But what emotion does it, it, does it spark and cause in you now? Knowing that these things have happened, you've done these things, you've, got through the, you've gotten through the fear and no one said anything about it. What does that do for you? Like, wh- how, does it, what, how does it change you in a way? Katia, great question. It reassures me that I am making the right decision Mm -hmm. by walking away from my job. I've been very transparent with everybody in my department. They know um, that I will be leaving University Communications by August. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's not an easy decision that I've made to leave university communications. Like I love UT Austin, would love to stay at UT, by the way, if anybody's listening, you work at UT, I'm on a job market, okay? Um, <laughs> would love to stay. Amen, plug, <laughs> girl, look, plug yourself, you have to. Yes, yes. <laughs> would love to stay at UT Austin, but I realized like my time in university communications has come to an end. There was a point when I was working at university communications where I knew I had the ear of the administration. I knew that there was a mutual respect there. Um, and I felt like my, my, my skill set and my expertise and my passions were being maximized. Mm-hmm. That is no longer the case. Um, so all of these things that have been happening, the silence, silence says a lot. Continue it. And that silence, yes. that silence is telling me it's time to go because these, mm-hmm. because the, the leadership in my office, either they don't care or they're afraid. And mm-hmm. I don't work, I don't want to work in a place where there is fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to work in a place where people don't care about me. Right. So deuces. <laughs> Bet on that. <laughs> yes. Wow. So you you said something just a minute ago, just about knowing that the silence exists and silence speaks just as loud as the protest in words and action. 
And the silence is what causes people to reach their breaking point, right? Whether it's their own silence mm. or the silence of others or the expectation that you are going to be silent about a certain thing. So mm. how does that, like just that environment of science, how do you think it's changed you for whatever is next for you? Like, what will you tolerate and what will you not absolutely tolerate because of the that experience and because what you mentioned about not wanting to be in an environment where there is fear and silence yeah yeah um so as i've been applying to a lot of different places a few organizations have stood out to me um that center diversity equity and inclusion mm -hmm. And they're doing that in their job description. Some people do it well, some people don't. But for those who do it well, it tells me you understand diversity, equity, inclusion is not just fashionable for you, but I can tell that it's important to you because of how you've talked about it and incorporated it throughout the whole job description. Mm -hmm. um, not just the introduction, um, but also like, the work that you do within your organization and what your team looks like. Mind you, Katinya, I'm the only Black person in my office right now. Uh, as far as people of color, we've had a lot of other people of color leave my office and they've all been replaced by mm. white people. Mm. So not only am I the only Black person in my office, but my office is also whitening simultaneously. Yes. So I'm looking, when I'm looking at other organizations that I'm considering um, working for, it's like, what does your team look like? What initiatives do y'all have going on for diversity, equity, inclusion? What does that really mean to you? And how are you not only talking the talk, um, but also walking the walk? Right, right, right. Let's go back to... Um, something we talked to you talked about a minute ago gaslighting and race lighting i think <laughs> hopefully by now people know what gaslighting is and we have been severely gaslit <laughs> in the last mm -hmm. couple of years or so politically socially let's talk about race lighting what does that mean for you and how has it affected you in your own space socially and professionally <sighs> So race lighting, what is race lighting? Um, race lighting is a play off of gaslighting. It's like when something racist happened and you call it out and they're like, oh no, that's not racist. That has nothing to do with race. And it's like, yes, it does. Yeah. It, right. Yes, it does. It does. Like, and that's <laughs> it right there. What you're doing, that's it. <laughs> Right. So it's like denial is it's the denial of the role that race plays in the experiences that people of color have. Right. right. Um, and race lighting has emboldened me. Mm. It has emboldened me to talk about race mm -hmm. because you don't believe how race is impacting people. So let me tell my story um, so that you can connect on me on a, on a personal level and see me as a person um, and how racism is impacting me as an individual. Mm -hmm. So yeah. race lighting has, um, has, has made for fertile ground 
for mm. for my writing. Let's just say that like yes. people are eating this up. They have an appetite for it um, because again, my my situation is not. It's very common. It's right. very common. You you just don't see or hear a lot of stories from people about it. You can read about it. You can read about something, but to read about how it's impacting an individual, yes. I think it has a different impact. You know, you are so right about that because it is something that we as Black people endure every day. And it's something that we have to, um, we have to point out every single day. And so it's like every time we are experiencing the trauma of that thing and, and the anger that comes along with it because the white people are not realizing and pretending like what they're doing is not a thing. And it is a thing. And so, you know, it's like having to constantly explain and having to constantly say, okay, yes, you may have been doing this for all of your life, but it is not okay. And pointing those things out and addressing it and then for it not to be well-received and absorbed and understood, oh my God. And then people are like, oh, why are you so angry? Why, why are you so, like, where the fuck have you, you been? <laughs> Let me give you an example of race fighting because examples help. Examples help to, to bring a point yes. home. So I'll give y'all an example of race fighting. Eyes of Texas mm-hmm. at UT Austin. UT Austin says it wants to create a welcoming and inclusive, diverse campus. Black faculty, staff, and students tell you this song makes me feel unwelcome. UT Austin responds, we're keeping this song. Mm. And not only are we keeping it, we're going to study it. We're going to talk about it some more. We're going to act as if it's not really a problem. And then we're going to say it's not a problem. And then to further say it's not a problem, we're going to segregate to make sure. With two different bands. (laughs) You're doing the thing. That's race lighting. That's race lighting. I don't know if there's a better example than that. You just summed it up. And then like, we have to endure the conversation. We have to have the conversation with all the people in space who are like, well, they said it wasn't a problem. So it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And for me working in university communications as a social media strategist, I have to surveil that conversation right so like I, I i am deep in it i have a lot so you we talk about trauma and like the re-traumas the re-traumatation how do you say what re-traumatization, re-traumatization i think re-traumatization <laughs> y'all know what i'm trying to say we traumatize and i continue i continue to be traumatized by this song day in and day out through the yeah. work that i have to do right so it's a lot it's a lot well And with the work that you do, because you have to be immersed in social media so deeply every day, you see all the stuff and you have to try not to react, but like respond if you choose to in a way that is, you know, positive. And that's not Mm -hmm. how you feel on the inside. Honestly, continue. Like, and I don't regret this. With Eyes of Texas, this was really the first time where I said no. I said, no, I will not be doing that report. And I gave it to my white colleagues to do. I said, no, I'm taking today off. I will, I will not be here because of Eyes of Texas. And I read it, I read an article yesterday where, where donors said, um, if black people don't like this, then they can leave. And I'm like, wow. why would I show up to work the next day? Why? <laughs> right. Right. 
What? Right. And why would you question me about why I'm not here? Like you need to understand why I'm not here. Oh, wow. Just on that alone, that does not account for all the experiences we have had in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't mm-hmm. account for it. You know, I was watching, um, oh gosh, this documentary and the, and the question was asked, when did you know, when were you aware of racism? I think it was, mm. um, it was a PBS documentary and it was, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, all of these um, accomplished, some of them were actors, uh, black activists, just a, a, just a random array of black people were asked the same question. When, did, when were you aware of racism? And so many of them answered, oh, in kindergarten, Oh, at seven years old, my mom told me this or, you know, or I experienced this, this white kid in class saying to me, you know, whatever racist thing. And at that young age, at five, like five, you should be having fun. You should be like learning to tie your shoes. You should be running around on the playground, not experiencing racism at the age of four and five. But it's like, it's always been with us. And we have had to deal with other people's fears, traumas, and also the fear of speaking out because of what was happening to us. And also like understanding and being able to articulate what is happening to us at the young age of five, seven, nine, whatever. Mm-hmm. I told my team this story when we were having conversations and I appreciate my team because they are not only curious, but understanding and also willing and not afraid to have the conversation about race. So I was telling them like trying to help them understand what I've experienced. And as a mother of three black children, two boys and a girl, what that's like for me. I told them the story mm-hmm. of when I was like, I think I was like 10 years old, 10, nine or 10. And my mom and I were in, I don't know, a department store. And I had this purse that I loved. And I was, it was a shoulder strap purse. I mean, a crossbody bag. And I had opened it up to get a piece of gum or something like that. My mom was like, she was like reprimanding me and she was serious. And she had that like serious look on her face. She goes, never do that again. And it scared me. And I said, why? She goes, because you don't want people to think that you're stealing something. Yeah. I'm like, why would they think I was, I'm a kid. Like, why would they think I'm stealing something? But she says, never do that again. And do you know, till this day, I still am like, I don't open my purse. If I am pulling my phone out of my purse, I make a big gesture. I like open my purse, pull out my phone. Cause I know there are cameras all in the store, but that like, I guess it's PTSD. I don't know, but that is still with me today. And I think mm-hmm. about it every time I have to go in my purse, what my mom said. And I make sure to not like bring a big bag when I go to the store because I don't want them to think that I put something in my bag. I carry a small purse. And that is because of that conversation my mom had with me at the young age of like nine or 10, like third mm-hmm. or fourth grade. Mm-hmm. So like yeah, that's... And yeah. you know, like racial trauma, it is passed down genetically yes. in our DNA. Yes. So like the fact that you still do that today, I am not surprised. I am not surprised because there's so many things that we do as a people, as a yes. black people, 
um, to protect ourselves that have been passed down from generation to generation. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I also, and just like thinking about talking to you about this and um, preparing for this, I started thinking about all the people that all the activists, right? All the civil rights activists, all the people who have made a difference in some way, shape or form, all the advocates, all the allies that have spoken out and, and thinking about the fear and trauma they face with just making the decision to speak out. So do you ever draw from that? Like, you know, in the work that you do in the organizations that you're involved in, do you ever draw from those who came before us as your inspiration? Um, yes, most definitely, most definitely. Um, I was very and have been very intentional about, um, learning the history of Black Falcony Staff Association. Mm. Um, when I first came to UT Austin, I don't know if Brenda Burt was here when you, what year did you come here? Um, I came in 2018. 18, okay, Brenda Burt was gone by the time that you got there. But like, um, when I came to UT Austin, I met Brenda Burt. She is a staple in the Black community and has done so much. She is one of the founders of Black Faculty Staff Association. So I immediately gravitated to her. And I soaked up as much information as I could from Miss Brenda Burt before she left. I, I was on campus. We overlapped maybe six months on campus. And when I realized who she was, I was like, I need to get to know her and talk to her and get that institutional knowledge, that Black institutional knowledge um from her so that was like the the first instance of me like connecting with past presidents of of BFSA so I can get an understanding of the history at at, at UT Austin mm-hmm. um I've also um read and if y'all have if you haven't read this yet I highly recommend it um as we saw it as we saw it is a history of the integration at UT Austin. Um, so that gave me a really good understanding of the foundation on which I was building from as well. So those those were a few things that I did as I was coming in trying to find my community um, and also building on the work of, of past people. Yeah, yeah. So now that you have stepped into a new source of your power. <laughs> and, and, I, and I love what, right? I love when people <laughs> not only recognize the power that they have within themselves, but the power of their own voice and the power of the pen and the difference that you can make for yourself before you even make it for anybody else. And I know like as a journalist, like I love covering stories and I don't necessarily think about Uh, my story in that story like that's you know obviously that's that's the point of journalism is to cover other people's stories but when you can sit down and think about your own story and think about the ways in which you not only have been affected but that you can make a difference for yourself by speaking out and just writing um how has that empowered you to go forward with the other things that you still need to say Um, it's really been a springboard. It's Mm -hmm. been a springboard, um, in this most latest, I guess, um, string of articles that I've written. The first one that I wrote was about algorithms (laughs) and how they're racist. (laughs) 
It's true. <laughs> oh my gosh. We did a comment about McCombs. I didn't know you wrote about that. Oh I my gosh. I also read the McCombs. I've read some articles from you all that were talking about it as well. Yeah, like as, yes. a, as, a, as a social media strategist, one of the things that I noticed just pushing out stories from UT Austin, we got over half a million followers, was that it was very hard to get Black stories or stories about Black people to get as much um, attention as mm-hmm. other stories that we was pushing out. I was like, yo, what is this? And then I have a friend who's a who's a, um, a YouTube influencer, and she was telling me how hard it is for Black creators to get their content out there and picked up and like in the algorithm. Um, and so I, I wrote about it. I wrote about her experience and my experience and the overlap of it. And so that was like the first article that I wrote in a string of things, and it was very well received. And so that's what encouraged like, this onslaught of, of articles that I've been writing about my experience with race in the work that I do. Yeah. Oh my God. The algorithm one is huge. I need to read that one. It is so fascinating how algorithms are programmed. And one of the mm-hmm. things I learned just from one of the conferences that, that we hosted and from the experts in the space one of the guys is um, Tej Arnad, and he is amazing. And what he talked about was the algorithms are racist because the people who are programmed the algorithms have biases. And mm-hmm. so their biases also get picked up in the work that they do because it just does. And so what he talked to me about was having to think about and, and the companies need to think about changing and doing um training with the programmers and the people who are behind the desks, behind the computers, programming the algorithms. And one of the examples that he used was Netflix. He goes, okay, so you watch Netflix, right? And you finish watching Netflix. And then because of the algorithm and your interest, it will suggest to you things that it thinks you you should watch. So if you're only watching like programs that are um, that have Middle Eastern people in them, then it only it's only gonna suggest those things to you. So therefore, like the bias is working rather than suggesting and helping you broaden your <laughs> your your um broaden your 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 ca- your catalog of things to mm-hmm. watch, it will only suggest certain things. So therefore, the like the people programming them and they think they're helping you, but they're not really because how they feel personally is also influenced in how they program the algorithm, which is crazy. I was like, what? I know it's mind blowing. It will blow your mind. But again, like all the things, the fear, it is, fear is in, feels like in everything that exists. And whether- Mm, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, I was actually, so that was the first article that I, that I wrote again, um, since I had taken my hiatus from a few years back. And like, there was some fear with writing that article because I didn't think people would take me seriously or they would say, oh girl, you just imagining, imagining that. But like, that's why I try in, in all of my writings, I try to incorporate like my story anchors it, but I also incorporate other people's experiences into the story so people can see that this is not an isolated incident. Right. This is something that impacts people who look like me. Yes, yes, yes. So what now are you preparing to write about if you can talk about it 
And in what ways do you think <laughs> I have to have that uh, <laughs> dis disclaimer? Um, and and how do you think fear is playing a part of a part of that that thought process? If it is that that's that question is like very timely because I had an idea today about what I would write about next. Yes. Um, so I was. Uh, reading some stories that was in my uh to read list I like bookmark a whole bunch of stuff and I go back and read them and like one of the stories this black man um had written a letter to himself to his 18 year old self and it was just telling him like hey you're gonna accomplish all of these things um but it didn't come without like some controversy or some some obstacles and so he's writing to himself I'm like hey I should write a letter to my younger self um encouraging myself to continue to use my voice because I very distinctly remember when I was in fourth grade I had a teacher tell me you're a really good writer and after that I said I'm a good writer <laughs> and so I want to write a letter to that that nine-year-old girl who was told that she's a good writer and I want to encourage her to use her voice and so um it's going to be more of a creative piece, more creative than, than what I've done in the past. But that's what I'm thinking about writing next is a, a letter to myself and really to all Black creatives is to tell your story, use your voice, use your gift to tell your story and add to the narration um, that we don't always control. Yeah, yeah. We have to take our power back right? Yes. We have given it away because, because of whatever, because of all the things. Because of fear. Yes. Oh, girl. Mm -hmm. Because of fear. And writing has allowed me to overcome my fears that I have about speaking up. Mm. Yes. Yes. So you've used it in a, you've used it in a very positive, helpful, empowering way. What would be what would be two other things you would tell people who are afraid to speak out? I mean, because I think this is something that everybody has experienced. If you haven't, you're going to experience it. And not just as adults, you know, I think as children, my daughter is about to go through an experience right now where she's had to really dig deep and find her own courage and bravery to speak out. So it, it doesn't age is not. Um, Age is not a factor because it happens to all of us at some point in our lives. So what else, what other piece of advice do you think you would offer? Um, I have, okay, two pieces of advice. The first one and the most important for me is knowing your truth. Mm. Like know your truth, know what your North, your North Star is, be confident in that truth. And then speak that truth because people are going to try to tell you you're crazy. They're going to try to tell you you don't know what you're talking about. But if you know your truth, then nobody can take that from you. Yeah. That is your power. Your truth is your power. Yeah. So I would say to remember what your truth is whenever you're thinking about speaking out um, and speaking up. And then the second piece of advice um, would be to have a support system. Have a support system. Have people who are going to give you feedback on whatever it is that you're about to say um 
have a support system so that when you do speak out and you and when you do get negative feedback, you'll have that support system on the other side that's like cheering you on and encouraging you um, through through any repercussions that happen from speaking out. Uh, so those would be my my two pieces of, of advice. I love it. Girl, when you said speak your truth, that just gave me chills. <laughs> And that's why I was so happy you invited me to to come speak on the podcast. I love how many like black creatives I've seen starting podcasts um, because it allows us to literally speak our truth. So thank you. Thank you for the, for the invite. This has been therapeutic for me just to talk about these things with somebody, because as I told you, ain't nobody been asking me about nothing, girl girl and like that just blows me away like what the first the first article that i saw of yours was the statesman and then i and then i from there i realized you have been writing i'm like oh my god how did i know this and so it was like oh my god desiree are you okay (laughs) girl this is a lot and i know like we all have been going through a lot just you know in our own space at work we have been going through a lot and we haven't collectively just like come together so I just wanted to check on you you know like you've been experiencing a lot and especially since Robin left like so mm-hmm. I I'm I'm so happy to see you today and I'm thank you girl like thank you for being honest thank you for being authentic and thank you for not being afraid to step into your your power and speak your truth like that is the most courageous and bravest thing that anybody can do no matter like jumping off a mountain, that's fine. But speaking, <laughs> talking about the things that you've been experiencing and speaking to it in a very articulate and expressive way, like that, that doesn't say bravery. I, I mean, there, there's no other way to say bravery like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. It takes courage to be vulnerable. And I have definitely yes. been very vulnerable through through my writings yes and I think that's what hurts so much continue oh that's where it hurts so much about um my leadership not not commenting on on what I've been doing and what I've been writing it's like here I am opening my heart sharing with you what's on my mind I know you see it we work in university communications I was in the news um I'm I'm being vulnerable and sharing with you how I feel and I and there's silence and crickets on the other end I hope that changes. I hope that changes. And it is, look, it is not on us to spark the conversation. And I think so many times we have been in the situation where we think it's our responsibility to to start the conversation. It is not. And we are not taking that responsibility anymore. It is not on us to start the conversation. So Mm. there you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm into that. Girl, well, (laughs) we have been talking with my friend, colleague, Desiree Cross-Ward. She's job hunting right now, you guys. So find her on LinkedIn, okay? Yes. And girl, again, thank you. This has been so great. And so, in oh, I feel so enriched. And um, I just feel blessed to be able to have this time with you. So thank you. Thank you. Ditto. All of that. Yes. Retweet all of that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And thank you, you guys, for joining us today on this episode. Be sure to check out other episodes in the new season, which I'm so excited that we are in our second season. We're going to be talking more about fears. And um, and then you can find I'll have a just uh, a link to Desiree's writings, which you can find in the description of this particular episode. And then also on my website, Katina.com. Thank you for listening today. We'll see you next time on Fuck Fear.
Coming up on a new episode of Fuck Fear. Before we had gotten taken away, we were in an apartment in Compton for about nine months, a whole school year, where we didn't go, I didn't go to third grade and my brother did not go to fifth grade. Um, we actually flunked, we failed third grade and fifth grade. Um, and we got left in the house for nine months and my brother would go, my brother Daniel would go out every day and go and steal something from the grocery store to cook for us. My cousin's story will blow you away. We talk about trauma-induced fears and how traumatic childhood events develop into a myriad of adult fears that she's still working through today. Be sure to join us for this very raw, personal episode. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you feel led, I'd love for you to write a review, check out other episodes, and as always, thank you for listening.